And welcome again to the Cato Institute. I'm Michael Cannon, our Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. You've received your law lecture from, uh, for the day, so today we're going to move into the debate portion of this uh, conference on the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the health care law that was passed by the House of Representatives one year ago today and signed into law by President Obama one year ago this coming Wednesday. Um, this panel uh, is, uh, comprises some distinguished experts uh, on various aspects of the health care law. We're going to hear from them about this law's impact on health care markets, labor markets, and the federal and state government's budgets. Uh, leading us off will be Kavita Patel. Uh, Dr. Patel is the Managing Director of Delivery System Reform at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. She's also a former Director of Policy for the White House Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs. You may have seen some of her uh, uh, viral videos about the healthcare law. You may remember them from during the debate, the legislative debate over this law. And uh, she's also a former Deputy Staff Director for the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee under uh, then-Chairman Senator Edward Kennedy. Uh, I will be following, Kavita will, will be talking about uh, the, how the, the provisions of the law intended to improve the quality of care and how it's delivered in the United States. I'll be following her to talk a little bit about uh, the history and debate over the law and some of the quality and access issues. Ron Pollack will be following uh, me. Ron is the founding executive director of Families USA, a national organization for healthcare consumers. Families USA's mission is to achieve a high quality, affordable health coverage for everyone in the U.S. Uh, Ron will be talking about the access provisions in, uh, the, in, in the new health care law. And Ron will be followed by uh, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, who will be batting cleanup for us. Doug is the, currently the president of the American Action Forum and a former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, so if... Um, uh, I'll turn the mic over to Kavita right now. Afterward, I hope you'll uh, 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 have questions uh, for, for the panelists. There will be a brief break between this panel and the next, a 15-minute break, uh, where we'll have a debate between Roger Pallon and uh, Neera Tandon over the constitutionality of the health care law. But for now, Kavita, please. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael, for inviting me. And it's, it's an honor and privilege to be here and getting to talk about uh, the Affordable Care Act, but I want to actually spend some time, uh, I'm hoping to only take about 10 minutes so that we can have what I'm sure will be a lot of spirited questions and, and discussion afterwards. But I want to actually spend time, since I know Ron might speak a little bit more to the access and coverage pieces, to try to break down what I think is 2,800 plus pages of a lot of language that for the most part the American public hasn't even begun to process, digest, and you just heard from our previous speaker a lot about the constitutionality and some of the issues going on at the state levels. You'll hear more about that. I want to talk about to not only what I've seen in person with how markets are changing, but probably more importantly, which is what all of us who've cared about health care, and I would say hopefully that's everyone in this room, is considering is the impact this has between kind of where the rubber hits the road, clinical care, the forefront. So I, my background is as a primary care internal medicine physician, and that's been part of where when we talk about quality, delivery system reforms, and some of the actual transformations in the Affordable Care Act, the pieces that are the most, I think, promising are those which 
largely were not specified to the letter of detail. And having had a history working on the Hill and in the administration, I can tell you that that's a very good thing. And we're seeing some of the things right now vis-a-vis -vis medical homes, patient care coordination, transitions in care coming to life by virtue of the fact that one of the things we tried to do in the Affordable Care Act was help to show that those are the promising areas for the next decades, to be honest. So I'll lay out some statistics. It's not unknown to any of you that our population is aging. And as we think about, as everybody is debating budgets, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid as well, how the aging population will have an impact on that. I would also add to that that as we talk about access and coverage, we're now asking for all the states to look at how to transform their Medicaid systems, which you've heard a little bit about. All of that, I say, is, is a very good thing. And even, even before the Affordable Care Act came into being, this is something that past administrations, both Democratic and Republican, have been struggling with. What the Affordable Care Act did in, in many of its 10 titles of organization within the bill is help to promote innovations in not only how we spend health care dollars, but doing exactly what we're seeing right now, which is kind of showing markets and labor forces writ large in healthcare that there is an avenue towards kind of better care at the right care at the right time for the right patient is, is how we think of it. But in truth, doing that is much more difficult. A couple of other statistics, I talk about kind of the swelling of, of our aging population. Uh, we just went through, anyone in the health professions knows that every year we have this rite of passage where uh, medical students have to decide what kind of careers they're going to enter into. And for a long time, quite honestly, and we're still dealing with this trend of more and more students entering into highly lucrative specialties, it's a personal lifestyle issue. It's something where they know that they can get paid within our fee-for-service system a lot more money for less time, largely because of the incentives that are currently in place. Now, the, the, the timing is not a coincidence, but for the first time in years, we, we're seeing a reverse in the trend we have seen previously, and this year we match 11% more into primary care. There is certainly a lot that led up to that, and I would say that there is a lot more work to be done, but the investment in health reform in terms of coordinating care and emphasizing that having some level of primary care is a good thing. Thing. That's something that we, we will hopefully see come more and more into the public vernacular. As I mentioned, a lot of this debate, a lot of our conversations in Washington are still often un, un, misunderstood, misrepresented, and confusing to the public. But actual numbers and watching medical students kind of voting with their feet and entering non-specialty primary care is one kind of measure of that. Second thing I wanted to point out is the investment in innovation itself. So uh, a lot of us uh, working on the health care law knew that there were Lot, there were mechanisms, bureaucratic and statutory and otherwise, which were preventing the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services from rewarding in the private market places that were doing things that were quote unquote innovative. So out of that was born, and something that started, to be honest, in a bipartisan fashion, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. That's $10 billion that are largely left so that we can do what had traditionally been a long process for demonstration projects, research, and evaluation, so that we can make sure we have flexibility to do that kind of work with actual practices. And one of the first things out the gate from that 10 billion uh, over 10 years was 
to promote the primary care medical home, and that's done at the state level, seven states which have received grants and funding to promote what they started on their own in the private settings with payers and to do that within Medicare and Medicaid, a population in which it's desperately needed. In terms of quality, I, if any of the folks in the room have actually tried to go to any of the government websites or data sources and understand the quality of care in our country, it can be very difficult to find, much less for yourself as an individual, as a patient in the system. We've known now for the last seven to eight years that the quality of care in our country has been at most, on average, good about half the time. So if you're someone who goes to Vegas, tries to bet, that may be decent odds. If you're dealing with health care, that's unacceptable. So in an effort to make sure that we understand the gap, why is it half the care at, on average, but then also to do something about it, we really need to understand what works. And that just means not just putting money into putting data into websites. That means actually investing in effectiveness and comparing research that looks at treatments, processes of care, as well as guidelines and how our evidence is being utilized by clinicians. So going through and thinking and streamlining and coordinating what the government does was something that all of us felt was broken and dysfunctional and that hopefully moving forward and even one year later we've already seen that now agencies within the federal government who had not spoken to each other, who have historically not necessarily even traded data or had data accessible to public people are now doing that. So all of these changes I would say are moving us in a direction where, again, going back to what's important, patients, clinicians and actual healthcare providers are doing, are trying, getting the information they need and understanding that they're working in a system that's rewarding the patient and the population as a whole and not just the fee-for-service system. So I'll, I'll finish kind of, I don't want to spend, I know we'll talk a little bit more about some of the specific provisions. I would say that in my mind, in thinking forward, so we've talked about a year and kind of what's in the bill that has some potential for the future. In looking forward, I would say that the key things are, as I mentioned, things that were not spelled out in such minutia, but offer an opportunity for not only interpretation, but for action and decision making on behalf of actual healthcare providers. And that's accountable care organizations, medical homes, value-based purchasing, a lot of the insurance design benefits that we're hoping that we will see in Medicare as well as in some of the state Medicaid contracts. That's exactly where the promise of not only cost containment and bending the cost curve will come from, but that's where the true promise of how to deliver the right care at the right time in the right place will come from. So I look forward to some questions about that, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be some. And turn it over to my friend Ron. Thank you. Thank you, Kavita. Um, you know, it's remarkable, um, it's, I, I should say it's not remarkable that we're having this event. Uh, oftentimes, after a major law is passed, it'll be one-year retrospectives. There are a number of these events that are happening around Washington, D.C. right now. I think what's remarkable is the content of these events. Usually, the event, people will come to these events asking questions like, well, have we met our goals for implementation? Is this law going to uh, deliver what it has promised? But the question on everyone's lips today, I think at this event and many of the others around this town, is will this law even be here 
in two years? Or will it be repealed? I think that, uh, that, that points to the fact that this is a remarkable law that we're talking about here. Before this law even cleared Congress, voters in Massachusetts took what was for Massachusetts uh, the very distasteful step of electing a Republican to the U.S. Senate in order to try to stop this law. 38 states had introduced and two states had enacted legislation that was intended to block it before it, was, before it passed Congress. In the years since uh, this is, uh, Obamacare has become law, and I should mention parenthetically, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of people don't like the term Obamacare. They consider it pejorative. I use it. I don't consider it to be pejorative. And, and if the law is a huge success, I think the president will ultimately thank me for calling it that. Uh, but in the years since Obamacare was enacted, three additional states have enacted laws trying to block it, and two states have amended their state constitutions in the hope of blocking this law. Twenty-eight states have filed, uh, filed lawsuits in federal court alleging that, this, that Obamacare violates the U.S. Constitution, half of them within hours of the signing ceremony. Individual citizens have filed another two dozen lawsuits uh, challenging the law. Many of, them are, many of these lawsuits are frivolous, but two of them are not because two federal courts so far in these cases have declared all or part of Obamacare to be unconstitutional. Opposition to the law contributed heavily to uh, sweeping Republican gains in the 2010 elections. The House, soon thereafter, voted to repeal Obamacare. Uh, 21 governors have threatened not to implement it. At least four states have frozen, returned, or refused the federal funds it offers them. And two governors have flatly refused to implement the law. Now, despite assurances uh, that Americans would come to like the law uh, once they found out what's in it, familiarity has bred contempt. Public opinion shifted uh, against this law the moment the first draft of Obamacare was introduced in Congress in June of 2009, and a plurality or majority of the American public has opposed it ever since. Among likely voters, the opposition is even greater. Opposition leads support by 20 points. The, the law's supposed beneficiaries are among the, most the groups most hostile to the law. Senior citizens, uh, who are some of those early beneficiaries, uh, in a recent poll, um, opposed the law by a 12-point margin. And small businesses, uh, also some of the early beneficiaries, uh, are suing, uh, are one among the groups that are suing so far successfully to overturn Obamacare. Why, so why is this happening? Why so much opposition? Well, I think that uh, there are a number of reasons. A lot of Americans believe that, as we heard from our, our, our keynote speaker, believe that Obamacare claims a power that Congress should not have and does not have, and that's the power to force people to purchase a private product. Um, the, and the idea that Congress's power to regulate so commerce somehow includes the power to compel commerce just doesn't sit well with the structure and purpose of the Constitution. I think other Americans see Obamacare as a barrier, not an enabler, uh, uh, to more affordable, better health care. Massachusetts passed a similar law in 2006, and that's led to rising costs, adverse selection, modest coverage gains, questionable health effects, longer waits to see a doctor, and has even opened the door to government rationing. And lest anyone doubt, that is how uh, this law purports to pay for half of the trillion dollars of new federal spending uh, under Obamacare is by rationing care to seniors in the Medicare program. Consumer protection, the, the provisions in this law that are uh, called consumer protections really aren't consumer protections. They're regulations that can hurt as much or as more as they can help. For example, there's a mandate that employers who provide dependent uh, coverage to their workers' dependents have to provide it to dependents up to the age of 26. That increases the cost of dependent care coverage and has led at least one employer, uh, a, a, a union local in New York, to drop 
coverage for 6,000 dependents. Uh, a mandate that was supposed to expand coverage for dependents had the opposite effect in, in, in this case, uh, leaving those dependents without health insurance. The uh, provisions in this law that are supposed to expand coverage for pre-existing conditions are not consumer protections. They're actually price controls, where the government says that whether a uh, a, a, an enrollee of a given age is healthy or sick, you have to charge them the same premiums as everyone else their age. Um, what the government is effectively doing is dictating that the insurance companies have to charge healthy people more than they would in a competitive marketplace so that they can charge sick people less than they would in a competitive marketplace and controlling the prices in that manner. The problem with price controls is that they always, cause, they always fail, they always cause human misery, and the reason is because they don't change the economic reality underlying market prices. They just encourage people to ignore uh, that underlying economic reality. The worst case scenario under these supposed consumer protections is that the market will implode. And we've already seen that happen in many, in uh, about 20 states, where the, where these price controls have been applied to health insurance uh, with, uh, for children. The child-only health insurance markets have vanished in 20 states, and another 14, I think, states have seen insurers leave those, uh, leave that market. The best case scenario under these price controls is that the market erodes slowly as, consumer, as insurers compete to ignore the sick. When you have these price controls in place and consumers have a choice of health plans, the sickest people will gravitate toward the most comprehensive plans. This is <clears throat> excuse me, a process called adverse selection. And those plans, as research by some of President Obama's own economic advisors shows, um, those plans, the most comprehensive plans, disappear. In order to prevent that from happening, insurers actually compete to avoid the sick, not because they're evil or greedy or anything like that, but because that is what these price controls reward. That is what official policy rewards. Uh, if they find a way to avoid, dump, or mistreat the sick, then their bottom line improves. So you... Uh, at, and there are examples of this happening in places where uh, in, in uh, markets and even health insurance exchanges, such as the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, where people with high-cost medical conditions have run into this problem, when, where insurers are dropping benefits precisely because they know that the sickest people uh, value those benefits and will go to another insurance company and bring down their competitor's bottom line uh, rather than uh, that insurance company's bottom line. These, this, uh, these price controls don't give sick people the security of access to care that comes with an, with an enforceable contract, nor the freedom to purchase insurance from uh, insurers who are competing for their business, which is what they would do in a free and competitive marketplace. So instead, we're making a, these uh, price controls make access to care less secure as well as destroy innovations. In, uh, and we, we've seen this happen already in North Carolina. Uh, several months ago, there were, uh, there were news reports, and the White House was touting this as a success of the law, that a uh, North Carolina insurer was giving uh, refunds to its enrollees as a result of Obamacare. What was actually happening was they were dipping into a pot of money that was set aside to pay the medical bills of the sick for the sick uh, as, a, as a result of an innovation in insurance called guaranteed renewability, and they were giving that money intended for the sick to largely healthy people. They were, this law has actually rated, uh, uh, rated funds that were intended for sick people to give them to healthy people, and we call this a consumer protection. In uh, 2014, when these price controls go market-wide, those are the incentives that all sick people in this country are going to face. And uh, as a final note on consumer protections, consumers, employers, and entire states are asking HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services to waive these supposed consumer protections, which raises the question of uh, whether they're consumer protections at all. Uh, the, these folks are begging for protection from the consumer protections. 
Uh, I uh, Obamacare is uh, no more going to improve the quality of care than it is going to uh, uh, protect, uh, than, these, than these consumer protections are going to protect patients. Uh, as Kavita mentioned, most of the provisions that are supposed to improve the way we deliver health care in the United States that were not specified in the law. Basically what happened was we created a center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid innovation where uh, that is going to run pilot programs, experiment with different ways of setting the prices and different uh, financial incentives, different terms of exchange to see if providers will prov uh, deliver care that's more coordinated so that doctors will actually talk to each other about the care they're providing to a shared patient. Um, there, are other, uh, there are other innovations, uh, but let's just talk about this one. The, the problem with these pilot programs uh, and this approach for reforming healthcare is that it has, we have tried it and it has never worked. Medicare has been trying pilot programs for its entire existence, and either those pilot programs fail, or if they succeed in either reducing, uh, improving the quality of care, reducing the cost of care, they are blocked by the in, by the uh, the corners of the healthcare industry whose income streams those innovations threaten, the low-quality providers or, or or the high-cost providers who will see Medicare revenues uh, delivered someplace else. So uh, under lobbying pressure, these, these pilot programs are eliminated. There was a, an article in the most recent issue of health, the journal Health Affairs that polled physicians in Switzerland and asked them, what would it take in order for you to provide more coordinated care than what you're providing right now, to join into sort of the accountable care organizations that are discussed um, um, in this law? Uh, and the, the, the Swiss doctors said that they would want a 40% raise before they uh, took these steps to improve the quality of care. That's the sort of resistance that you're going to see uh, these, to these pilot programs. As far as the cost of care, uh, this law is not going to improve the cost of, 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 of medical care or of health insurance either. The individual mandate, portions of which are already taking effect, began taking effect on September 23rd of 2010, are already increasing the cost of health insurance for millions of Americans. One insurance company reported that it, uh, those provisions were forcing it to increase premiums for some, some customers by up to 30 percent. Now, we're not going to hear about this from insurance companies anymore because HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius has essentially threatened to bankrupt any insurance companies who say that the law is increasing premiums by more than 2 percent, but you can be sure that it is increasing premiums by more than that. Uh, the premise of this law is that you can reduce individual responsibility for health care spending and people will make more responsible spending decisions. Now others, uh, uh, another reason for the backlash against this law is that many believe the law is just overkill. If you look at the pre-existing condition insurance plans that this law sets up in each state, they've attracted uh, just 12,000 enrollees at last count or 3% of the 375,000 that were projected to enroll. That suggests since the primary motivation for this entire law was to protect people with pre-existing conditions, that suggests that it wasn't necessary to conscript 200 million Americans into a compulsory health insurance scheme to solve that problem. Um, the projections that uh, Obamacare will permanently eliminate 800,000 jobs, not to mention any temporary job losses, uh, is striking fear in those who have been battered by the recession. And finally, many Americans, I think, are taking this law personally. The president promised he would put an end, quote, put an end to the game playing, but then made backroom deals with the drug lobby and Walmart and others, while the Senate Democrats who were drafting this law used tax dollars to buy votes in support of it. As I mentioned before, well, 
uh, they watched uh, Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, repeatedly censor insurers who disagreed with her. They saw their own tax dollars buy ads where Andy Griffith uses weasel words, and that's, those aren't my words, those are from factcheck.org, weasel words to mislead seniors about how this law will affect their coverage. They hear the president continue to say things that they know are untrue, that his own uh, advi advisors in some cases and nonpartisan observers in others have discredited, like Obamacare will allow Americans to keep their coverage, reduce costs, and reduce the deficit. Um, first, you remember, first we heard that the individual mandate was a tax. Then the president told us that it was not a tax. Then his Justice Department went into court to argue that, in fact, it is a tax. At a certain point, people start to feel insulted. So um, to wrap up, I don't think anyone knows, Newt Gingrich predicted that this law would, would be repealed by Congress uh, uh, by March or April of 2013. I don't know if anyone uh, can know if that's true, but I'm str struck by two things. The first is if Congress doesn't repeal this law, then we'll be back here on the second anniversary of Obamacare, the fifth anniversary of Obamacare, the tenth anniversary of Obamacare, having conferences like this one and rooms like this one in, in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the country. And we'll be asking why healthcare spending is still rising out of control, why we still don't have coordinated care, accountable care organizations, comparative effectiveness research that helps us improve the quality of care, health information technologies. We'll be asking why, uh, uh, and we'll be questioning why insurers are, um, uh, being rewarded by uh, Obamacare's price controls for avoiding or mistreating the sick. And the second thing that I'm struck with, and I think that everybody has to be struck by this, is uh, regardless of what you think about that prediction, that this law will be wiped from the books in 2013, um, it's striking just how plausible that prediction is. It's certainly far more plausible than anyone thought it would be uh, one year ago today. So with that, I will turn things over to Ron, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, other than that, Michael, you like the Affordable Care Act, right? There are a couple provisions I didn't discuss. Um, Michael, actually, uh, uh, we've, we've been in a number of places together. Uh, the last time I was awarded with uh, three Cato Institute uh, t-shirts, and uh, I thought I was going to wear them, but only if we had an Affordable Care Act birthday cake uh, that you would celebrate. We, um, but I don't see it anywhere. But, but on the fifth anniversary, maybe we'll have that. Um, you know, you raised the question, uh, Michael, uh, early on about uh, will there be an Affordable Care Act years from now? I, I think the answer is yes, we will have that. Um, you know, I, I was listening to David Rifkin's uh, uh, presentation, and I was surprised we didn't have uh, much of a discussion about a key issue that uh, will be dealt with uh, if uh, David is right that the um, Affordable Care Act does not have a basis in the Commerce Clause. I think it does. I used to be a law school dean. I've argued in front of the Supreme Court a few times. Uh, I do think it's constitutional, but I'll leave that to the next panel. But one of the issues he didn't address, which I presume your next uh, uh, group will address, is even if the court does find that it doesn't have a constitutional basis in the Commerce Clause, what happens to the rest of the statute? And you'll hear 
uh, significant debate about a so-called severability issue, uh, and uh, the, the legislation does not have a severability clause, which uh, often it does have. But the key standard is, um, do other things survive? And, uh, and the test is certain things that would not have passed but for the provision that is deemed unconstitutional, they are vulnerable uh, uh, to, uh, to being uh, deemed uh, unconstitutional as well. Other things are not. And there's a whole host of provisions in this lengthy piece of legislation that don't even have a colorable relationship, including some of the things I'm going to talk about. Um, I want to focus on two sets of things. Um, one is uh, we at uh, Families USA, we do celebrate uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. We actually have a bake-off in our office. Uh, we've got five different departments, and each department is taking responsibility each day to bake a cake. Um, and I have to get back for the first one because uh, I'm told it's going to be uh, uh, delicious and very sightly. Um, but I, I want to talk about two things. One is why do we celebrate the Affordable Care Act today, uh, um, those of us who do, uh, on the first anniversary? What has been achieved in this first year? And then secondly, I want to talk about something that doesn't get a lot of attention, even though it's key to the legislation, and that's the access-related provisions in the statute. So what have we seen in the first 12 months? Much of the conversation that we've uh, heard really are about matters that go into effect uh, in 2014. But there are a number of things that have already gone into effect, and I think they're very significant and by and large very helpful. Uh, I, since I have a limited amount of time, I won't go into all of them, but let me pick out some of the more salient ones. Uh, in no particular order, they include young adults, uh, which uh, turn out to be the largest uh, age group that is likely to be uninsured, now can get a uh, certain kind of help. They can continue to stay on their parents' policy up to their 26th birthday. Uh, there's uh, 3.4 million uninsured in this age group. Uh, I don't know what the number is who've already availed themselves of coverage, uh, but they now can get coverage through their parents. There's a moral here, you've got to be good to your parents, um, but uh, it is something I think worth celebrating. Secondly, uh, with respect to seniors, some seniors have already uh, seen the benefit of this uh, legislation in two different respects. One is, as you know, there is this huge gap in coverage, uh, so, the so-called, uh, euphemistically called uh, donut hole, where after uh, um, seniors and people with disabilities in the Medicare program have spent a certain amount of money, then they go into a no coverage zone, uh, which is what this donut hole is. Let me just uh, explain what that gap is in today's dollars. Um, once a senior or other Medicare beneficiary has spent uh, $2,840 in drugs, that's when this gap in coverage uh, begins, and it doesn't end till they've spent $6,484, a gap of uh, $3,644. And with each passing year, this gap was supposed to get larger. 
Last year, people who fell in the donut hole received a modest $250 check that defrayed part of the cost. This year, uh, anyone falling into the donut hole gets their uh, brand name drugs uh, uh, with, with a 50% discount. In, in other words, uh, somebody uh, who does fall into the donut hole will now get an $1,822 benefit uh, to help them afford their drugs. For, uh, they also, seniors are also receiving the benefit of free preventive care so that Medicare becomes uh, more of a preventive and primary care system, not just a sickness care system. I think that is very valuable. Third area, small business owners. Uh, small business owners can receive a tax credit up to 35% uh, if they have fewer than 25 workers. Uh, there are other standards for who is eligible. Uh, the number of small businesses that are eligible for this tax credit is approximately 4 million. I don't yet know how many people have availed themselves of it, um, but uh, there are over 4 million who qualify for it. With respect to children, uh, children are uh, the first to receive the benefit of not being denied coverage uh, due to a pre-existing condition. Insurance company can't deny coverage just because somebody has asthma or diabetes. Uh, ultimately, that gets extended to adults in 2014. Uh, there's reinsurance available uh, for early retirees between the ages of 55 and 64 which is enabling more and more companies to continue providing coverage uh, for their early retirees. Community health centers have received a significant amount of money through the Affordable Care Act. Um, the uh, community health centers were projected to provide services to 18 million people before uh, this extra money was provided. And now, according to my friends at the National Association for Community Health Centers, they will be able to serve 29 million people this year, a very significant increase. Uh, already in effect uh, is a prohibition on, uh, life on, on lifetime limits on insurance. So if somebody has a catastrophic illness, cancer, gets into a bad accident, um, uh, they are no longer uh, are subject to uh, being bankrupted because they have to spend money totally out of pocket once they've reached the lifetime cap. Insurance companies now uh, cannot take away your coverage uh, when you get sick. If you've been paying your premiums all along, there have been a number of insurance companies that have rescinded policies uh, when uh, people got really sick. That no longer is lawful. Uh, um, and that's providing new protections. Um, I mentioned that uh, there's a prohibition on lifetime caps. We're already moving towards uh, increasing annual caps. By uh, 2014, there will be no annual caps as well. Uh, yet another area is we want to make sure that our premium dollars are used for our care rather than uh, for administrative costs, marketing and advertising, uh, and profits. Uh, now there is a uh, so-called medical loss ratio requirement that at least 80 cents out of the dollar uh, must be spent on the provision of care. If you're in a large plan, it's 85 cents out of the dollar. Uh, I think that improves efficiencies. Uh, and then uh, last 
thing I want to point out is this law does not uh, undertake uh, price control. It does ensure that there's greater equity in premiums. Uh, what I mean by greater equity, uh, somebody isn't going to be charged more just because they've had some illness. Uh, what it does do as well is it provides money to state insurance commissions so that they can review the proposed premium increases uh, by insurance companies in their states. And by and large, we've, we've seen some significant results from this. In California, Blue Shield of California, of California proposed to increase premiums uh, up to 59%. Uh, and after the insurance commission reviewed uh, this proposal, they asked uh, Blue Shield of California to go back to the drawing board. They have now rescinded uh, that uh, proposed premium increase. In Connecticut, uh, similarly, the Insurance Commission uh, was asked to review Anthem Blue Cross's 20% uh, premium increases. They thought it was unjustifiable, asked them to go back to the drawing board, and that 20% increase has been rescinded. It's going to be a lesser amount. In Maine, WellPoint Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield requested a 23.1% increase. Again, they were told to go back to the drawing board, uh, and uh, those uh, increases are going to be uh, modified. Uh, Anthem Blue Cross in California sought an increase of 39%. Uh, they were told to go back to the drawing board. They've now rescinded that uh, increase of 39%. That is not to say that these insurance companies didn't increase premiums. They did increase premiums, but by a considerably lesser amount. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is an area where uh, I'm afraid uh, our friends on both sides of the aisle talk too little about, um, and that is about expanding health care coverage, especially for those who are uninsured. Republicans, as a general rule, uh, have not uh, talked about this as a goal. It clearly has not been a priority. It is not a key constituency of the Republican Party. I would say Democrats have talked too little about it as well uh, because they want to focus the conversation on middle-class families uh, because that is politically a uh, more effective thing to do. That said, uh, there uh, in the last census count, there were 50.7 million Americans who are uninsured. Think about that. That's one out of six people in the population. Combined, th this number is larger than the combined, underscored the word combined population of 25 states plus the District of Columbia. Obviously, I'm talking about the least populous states, but that's uh, extraordinary. And when the Census Bureau numbers come out, in uh, 2010, I suspect the number will be higher just because of what happened uh, to the economy. Now, why is this occurring? Well, before the Affordable Care Act, we've seen a steady erosion of employer-sponsored insurance. It's still the primary way that uh, uh, we provide health coverage. Whether that was a wise decision uh, or an accident, uh, I'll leave for others uh, to talk about. But we, that has been the predominant way uh, by which we provide coverage. Uh, in the year 2000, 64.2% .2 of the population had employer-sponsored insurance. In 2009, it was 55.8%. We've seen a steady erosion. And for those people who can't get coverage that way, especially those of modest means, 
Our safety net for so much of the population is more whole than webbing. And our safety net, Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, key safety net, um, they really derive their, um, their basis of providing coverage uh, from the 16th century Elizabethan poor laws. And what I meant by, mean by the 16th century Elizabethan poor laws, in England, when England set up its welfare system, it said that it's not enough simply to be poor. You have to fit a deserving category. And in 1935, when the Social Security Act was passed, that's the, that's the system we created. And then in 1965, uh, when Medicaid was adopted, uh, the uh, pathway onto uh, Medicaid was by virtue of getting social welfare benefits. Well, you still see the vestiges of that in terms of coverage today. Uh, we treat kids relatively okay as a result of the confluence of the Medicaid program and the Children's Health Insurance Program. But the adult populations are treated very differently. And as a result, though kids in virtually all the states are eligible for coverage uh, if uh, they are in a family with income less than 200% of poverty. For a family of three, that's a little over $37,000. For families that have adults, we have a very different situation. The median income eligibility standard in the 50 states for a three-person family is 62% of uh, poverty or under $11,500. And in a number of states, the eligibility standards for safety net coverage is shockingly low. Arkansas, $3,150. Alabama, $4,447. Pennsylvania, $6,300. And in four out of five states, if you're a parent, if, if you're a non-parental adult, you're ineligible for any coverage irrespective of income. So let me conclude by saying the Affordable Care Act makes some significant progress once and for all in expanding coverage. It does so by providing some help, direct help to people with incomes below 400% of poverty. Family of three, it's about $74,000. And as a result, the Congressional Budget Office tells us that they anticipate that about 32 million people uh, who, are, who don't have coverage today will receive it. It is possible that even more than 32 million people will get coverage depending upon how well enrollment and retention systems are established through regulations and state implementation. But I think that's a matter for which all of us should rejoice. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much for the, the chance to be here today. Um, there's obviously an enormous amount that has been said about the Affordable Care Act, um, a lot of it by me. Um, there's a lot more that we could discuss about it. Um, I'm increasingly tired of hearing myself talk about it, I'll be honest about that. Um, but uh, I do want to thank Cato for having this event, thank Michael, and especially want to thank Kavita and Ron for uh, joining in the, in the discussion. Uh, one of the things that has been forgotten in the course of the debate and the enactment and now the anniversary is that there was a time several years ago, beginning of 2009, when it was a bipartisan conclusion that America needed sensible health care reforms that would control the growth of spending 
improve the efficiency of the delivery system and expand coverage. That was, in fact, a bipartisan objective. Uh, what happened in between ended up as a highly partisan activity and has uh, given me just one more piece of evidence that all partisan laws end up being bad policy. Um, it is unwise in a democracy to push through large legislation on one party's votes. Uh, those laws are never infused by the best ideas of both sides. As a result, they're not as good. Uh, and they immediately become uh, the kinds of objects for overturning that we've seen the Affordable Care Act become among Republicans. Uh, it doesn't serve a country that needs a durable and functional health care system well to undertake this kind of an activity. And so I expect us to be back uh, again in the future discussing either the demise of the Affordable Care Act, which I view as a real possibility, um, or uh, uh, alternatives that would be built upon uh, its shaky foundation. Um, what are the problems with that foundation? Well, um, Michael asked me to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act from the perspective of uh, budget, labor market, and economic policy. Um, and there I think it is indeed uh, a dramatically dangerous piece of legislation and at the wrong point in our history. Uh, I hope it is now well understood that the federal government's budget is on the road to hell, uh, that there is no polite way to describe why the world's largest economy has placed itself on a trajectory that looks like a third world debt crisis where we will knowingly drive ourselves to the point where we run at full employment trillion dollar deficits, three-fourths to 80 percent of which are our uh, interest on previous borrowing within the next 10 years. And it is for that reason mystifying to me when the very prosperity and freedom that is the, built on that, that economy is put at risk by taking a decisive step in the wrong direction at a time when we already have such deep problems. Uh, there is no way you can pretend that the Affordable Care Act will improve the government's fiscal or budgetary condition. It sets up two new entitlement spending programs, insurance subsidies uh, for those in the exchanges, and the so-called CLASS Act, a long-term care insurance program, both of which the Congressional Budget Office estimates will grow at an average of 8% per year annually, as far as the eye can see. Tax revenues will not grow at 8% a year annually, as far as the eye can see. The economy will not grow at a rate of 8% annually, as far as the eye can see. There will be no way either of those things can keep up with these new spending demands, and the, de the budget will deteriorate, not improve. Now, you can paper that over with a variety of budgetary gimmicks uh, and tricks over the 10-year budget window, and, and that has been done in the passage of this legislation. You can count on savings that will never appear in the Medicare program because we haven't reformed the Medicare program. Uh, its business model remains the same. Its costs will be the same. Its providers will need the same money, or we just won't cover the beneficiaries. And I think when Congress is uh, faced with that choice, it will cover the beneficiaries. Um, you just simply cannot pretend that the CLASS Act will collect money inside the budget window and not pay out benefits past the budget window. You cannot leave out the, the annual appropriations that are necessary to set up and run the program. You cannot do all the things that they did and somehow trick people into believing this is a good step from a budgetary point of view. And that's if you take it at face value. 
And I think there are two enormous risks to the so-called face value that have been underappreciated in the discussion of the cost of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, number one uh, is the notion that we will give to one family that makes about $59,000, $7,000 in subsidies in the exchanges because their employer doesn't offer them insurance. And the, we can find another identical family that makes the same money and gets nothing because their employer offers insurance. It is an unfairness of such manifest proportions that it won't survive in this, in this country. And my fear is that Congress, when faced with this gross inequity, is going to say, oh my god, we have to fix this. How could this have happened? The answer is you did it, but uh, we've seen that movie. And they'll fix it by giving everybody the money. And it'll explode in cost. And the second big risk is that we'll end up with more people in the exchanges because employers can do arithmetic. Congress may or may not, uh, but employers can do arithmetic, and they understand that there is so much taxpayer money on the table in those exchanges that it is entirely possible for them to drop their coverage, particularly for anyone under 300,000, uh, under 300 percent of the federal poverty line, it is a no-brainer to drop the coverage, pay the penalty, give the worker a raise and allow that worker to take the post-tax wage plus the subsidies and buy insurance that is just as good as what they're offering or better out in the exchanges and still come out ahead as an employer. We have put so much money on the table that it is a no-brainer for workers and employers to agree that the coverage should go away and everyone should go into the exchanges. If you take the population that's eligible for that kind of uh, bargain and assume that not even all of them do it, you can double the trillion dollar cost easily over the first 10 years or triple it. It is not a law we can afford. And the reason is that we have somehow disguised, our, uh, tricked ourselves into pretending that you can say that any insurance that costs more than 10% of your income is unaffordable when as a nation we're spending almost 20 cents of every dollar in health care. Those two things can't both be true. So, so this is a budgetary uh, disaster of the first order. And, and uh, we may want to expand coverage, I understand that, but if we want to do that, we have to first genuinely fix the delivery system, control the costs and channels of those resources in. A cover-first strategy was a mistake from the outset because it covers people on paper, yes, but the moment we put those 32 million people into the system and the providers get overwhelmed, there is no way a Congress can go back to them and say, fix the way you do your business. They're going to say, not a chance. We are so busy taking care of the folks you gave us. And we won't see those, those improvements, and this, this system will, uh, will, will, I believe, collapse under its own budgetary weight. It's also bad economic policies. I mean, it's a first-order uh, bad growth policy to promise anyone who's thinking about expanding a business in the U.S. or locating one that their future will consist of, in the good news scenario, higher taxes or higher interest rates or both, and in the bad news scenario, an international financial crisis precipitated by the United States. That's not a growth strategy. And that's um, the position we find ourselves in. Uh, it takes the, the soon-to-be one-fifth of the economy that is health care and imposes on it new taxes, insurer fees, medical device taxes, uh, pharmacy fees, Cadillac taxes, mandates on employers, on individuals, on providers of all sorts, um, on states. Uh, and um, those taxes, mandates, and regulations are not pro-growth strategies. This is not a way to have that sector be more efficient and contribute to, to the economy. 
um, it, it is in uh, many ways uh, dramatic steps in the wrong direction from that point of view. So I, I worry a lot about this at a point when it is clear that it, the most important priority in the United States has to be growth, that when we are faced with clear uh, choices between other social goals and growth, growth has to trump because we have too many people out of work and we are not going to be able to employ them and generate the resources needed for both the public and the private sector without that growth. And uh, we have an anti-growth bias in the bill. The last thing that's disappointing about this is it genuinely represents big missed opportunities. Um, uh, I think that's true both in the sense of its, of its ultimate partisanship, uh, but it's also true at, at the fundamental level. We, we came into this with the need to reform Medicare. Medicare is the problem from the budget point of view. Medicare is also the problem from, from a medicine point of view. It's a, a fee-for-service and siloed system that pays doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, and drug companies in different silos. It feeds fragmentation and the absence of coordination, and we didn't fix Medicare. We needed to fix Medicaid. Medicaid's a terrible system. It's a disservice to Americans who are in it. They can't get access to, to providers at rates that are frightening. They show up in emergency rooms at greater rates than those who are uh, uninsured. It's a broken system that needed reformed so that the individuals who got Medicare benefits didn't get a shallow promise, they got a chance to get health care. But instead of reforming it, we expanded it on paper and um, uh, missed the real problem. So uh, I would love to have uh, stood here um, on the first anniversary of a bipartisan health care bill that, that took care of the cost problems and enhanced the prospect for coverage in the United States. Um, instead, we're celebrating the anniversary of something which represents uh, another missed opportunity in health care reform in the United States, a dangerous step from an economic and budgetary policy point of view, and something that really cannot survive. And uh, regardless of what we call it, repeal, replace, or um, uh, simply throw up our hands and pray, uh, it will not be this way in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Pavita and Ron. And um, we'll go ahead and take questions from the audience now. I'll uh, just make a couple of requests. First, uh, wait until the microphone gets to you after I've called on you. Second, please let us know where you're from, uh, what your name is. And third, um, Try to keep it a question. I understand that the questions have to be teed up, but let's uh, try to keep the commentary to a, uh, to a bare minimum. I, I see one hand up. Uh, the gentleman just one seat in on the, from the aisle on this side. My name is uh, Sam Wainwright from the New America Foundation. Um, I had a question for uh, Mr. Holtzikin. Um I've heard the point repeated fairly frequently that Insurers are going to do the math, and they're going to see that it's in their best interest to drop coverage and dump their employees into the exchanges. Um, and my question is, why aren't they doing it now when there isn't a penalty to stand in their way? And why do we assume, I guess, why is the assumption made that they will do it in the future um, when there is no disincentive now and there might be in the future? And does that maybe lead to um, reasoning that there's a deeper reason why employers offer coverage other than just arithmetic? So um, it's a good point. Um, th there are these competing... Uh, pressures. The one I described is one that is the, the pure opportunity for those who are in relatively low tax brackets and relatively low earnings to, to make that a financial uh, calculation. For higher income individuals in higher tax brackets, the, the government has a different subsidy they throw on the table, which is the exclusion of health insurance from, from taxation. So what we've got is competing federal subsidies and a law that says 
non-discrimination, if you offer, you have to offer to everybody. And so the hope and the reason the CBO sort of puts relatively few in the exchanges is that, you know, the, the desire to take the federal subsidy for high-income people will force them to not take it for the low-income workers and that, that that will hold. That's, that's the logic. Uh, and I understand the logic. We have never before tested that on the scale that we're about to test it. Um, we know that in uh, every uh, company, when they began doing their due diligence uh, post-passage, um, uh, they first found out that, you know, the retiree drug coverage had been changed. They all booked immediately um, their losses, and they had to. Uh, they then sent their HR departments off to do this, and they've all come back with the same conclusion, which is, geez. Uh, and now they get to the, the third factor, which is, how do you attract employees? At the moment, you compete on the basis of wages plus these tax-preferred benefits. Um, at some point, someone's going to go, as was my prediction, and then the whole industry is going to jump in because they'll be on a, a different level playing field, not offering that, competing on, um, on the pure wage because everyone's going to get health insurance. It's the only question is how. So, um, you know, I can't say will it happen for sure, but as I said, it's a serious upside risk. There's not a downside risk there. It's a huge upside risk. Um, gentleman on the aisle. Ron or Kavita, did you have anything to add to that question? Well, I would just, I would, I would just say that uh, um, most, certainly large employers are loath to leave the uh, health coverage uh, uh, efforts that, that, that they've been uh, providing for their workers. It, it's, it's a major recruitment device. And, and, and now, uh, there, I think there's a tougher question for smaller businesses. Um, smaller businesses, however, one of the benefits they're going to receive from the Affordable Care Act uh, is that uh, they will be able to join uh, these uh, exchanges, these marketplaces, and as a result, they will be able to, in effect, pool together with other small businesses to get a better deal because there are going to be much uh, larger numbers of people in those pools than each small business alone can provide. So uh, if I had to guess, I mean, we're, we're predicting here and we, and we don't really know. I, I think there's going to be little movement on the part of uh, large uh, businesses in terms of uh, moving away from health care coverage. I would think for small businesses, there's going to be a very significant number of them that will join the exchanges will gain what uh, they obviously will think will be the benefit of that. Uh, whether they drop coverage altogether, uh, I don't know. Maybe just tease a follow-up your comments you said that maybe, maybe it's an accident that it was 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 an accident Think about the people watching on C-SPAN. Um, Mr. Pollock, you had said that maybe it was an accident that we came about with this system in which employer-sponsored coverage is the major coverage in the United States. Maybe from um, Mr. Cannon, Mr. Pollock, is this is potentially dumping people off of employer-sponsored rules not? Is, is it part of maybe switching the way in which we think about how we cover people? Is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, let me just let me answer that in, in different ways. I, if, if we were writing on a blank slate, <clears throat> I, I know I wouldn't, and I suspect most people wouldn't want to predicate uh, health care coverage on your employment. 
it, it was an accident of history and you know when we had uh, wage and price freeze and this was a way to get around that um, and as a result employer sponsored insurance uh, grew rather significantly during the debate about the Affordable Care Act when uh, different folks were coming up with different ideas about uh, how uh, uh, the legislation should be shaped uh, there was a very important political axiom and I'm not saying this in a deprecating way uh, but it's based on the experience that has occurred in uh, previous failed efforts to achieve health care reform and that is that to the extent that you are threatening people's coverage that exists right now. That's a non-starter, never work. And uh, that's why the president talked about, well, we're going to enable people to stay with coverage uh, if they like it. Um, that was not intended in any way as a lie. Obviously, there's going to be a new dynamic as, as the exchanges get set up. Um, uh, I think you're going to see a fair number of people join the exchanges. You are going to see the small businesses join the exchanges. And people are likely to change the way they have coverage. But in terms of the dynamic of a legislative and political process, it isn't a precipitous pulling away and requiring you to leave. And I think that was a very important political tenet uh, uh, that uh, was one of the lessons learned in 93-94. 93-94, a lot of people felt that the coverage they had was actually going to be taken away. And if I can just respond and build on something that Ron said, I, I would agree. I don't think that anyone who uh, was designing a healthcare sector from scratch would put everyone into uh, health insurance or 90% of the of the public into health insurance that was tied to employment. Among the problems with our employer-sponsored health insurance system are the fact that it increases uh, the cost of care. It increases health care spending and health insurance premiums by providing a, a tax preference and making people feel like they're spending their employer's money, someone else's money rather than their own. That has an inflationary impact on premiums. At the same time, it denies you health insurance at the moment you most need it in many cases, which is when you get sick and lose your job, which is why Uwe Reinhardt, a health economist at Princeton University, said that only the devil could have designed our health insurance system because humans of goodwill would never do a, a thing like this. Um, but it's also important to recognize if we want to uh, get this problem, fix this problem in the right way, how this problem came to be. And this isn't an example of free markets at work. This is an example of government failure. It was um, an accidental decision almost that the government made to create a, an enormous tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance. And that is how health insurance grew in this country because of that enormous uh, distortion of the relative prices of um, employer-sponsored health insurance, individual market health insurance that you purchase directly from an insurance company, and even um, uh, health care that you purchase directly out of pocket. It was the government that uh, distorted everyone's, health, everyone's decisions toward employer-sponsored insurance, and now we're in this terrible fix where every, almost everybody wants to move to a system that provides more secure coverage that stays with you from job to job, but it's hard to, but in order to do that, people would have to leave their employer-sponsored health insurance. Now, how do you, you ask the question, how do we know that that's necessarily a bad thing? I think the best way to figure, uh, uh, to judge is who's making the decision about whether the individual worker is leaving that employer-sponsored plan for a pl uh, another 
plan that, that they purchase directly. I, th I think in this law, uh, for the most, uh, as a result of this law, for the most part, those decisions are going to be taken out of the hands of individuals. It's going to be uh, policymakers and employers that are making those decisions for them. I think a better way to get at this problem is to give the individual workers the money that the employers were spending on their behalf. It's about $10,000. We call that the employer contribution. It's actually the worker's money because the employer takes it out of their wages. And if the employer weren't providing uh, health insurance, as Doug says, the employer would have to give that to them. The, the labor market would force them to. Give the worker that $10,000 and let them choose whether or not to stay in their employer plan or in or purchase a plan on the individual market uh, and, and and let their decision, let, let their preferences drive that decision rather than have that uh, decision being driven by policy through tax distortions of those uh, or, or tax uh, provisions of the tax code that distort the cost of uh, uh, one of those options uh, over the other. I think there are much better ways of getting at that problem than the way we're doing it right now. Um, and uh, well, that's that. Do you uh, did you want to add anything else, Kavita? I just want to say that getting rid of the exclusion is politically really popular. I've been there. <laughs> On both well, sides of the <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and that's and that's part of and that's part of the challenge. Uh, leveling the playing field a little less difficult, but still Herculean. So, sir, we've been asking you to wait for a long time. Thank you for your patience. Uh, thank you. My name is uh, Gordon Smith. I'm uh, a citizen that lives in the Washington area. Uh, this question is largely for Mr. Pollock and for uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Patel. Um, my analysis is that we've had large technical increases in medical care and that they've grown the technical increases have grown faster than our ability to pay for them and we our economy just can't keep up with it and the, the for the quality of care that they really could provide I'm part of an aging population why shouldn't I work hard in my lifetime and at 79 continue to work even with health problems so that I save my money and select what care I feel is needed, even though I can't afford the most I can afford. And if I can't afford it, so be it. That's my problem. I'm a human being. I've worked hard. I've done my thing. Now, my uh, uh, grandfather couldn't afford a Ford car. He had to keep his horses. But I, as a grandchild, didn't have to pay for them. Right now, I, could, I would love to have a safer car than I currently drive, but I don't have it. Now, why, Sir? Why, no, uh, sorry. Why should I have to pay for this health care plan and force it on my grandchildren? Why shouldn't I take care of myself, maybe not get the best uh, nursing care that's around, but at least it's affordable for me? Why shouldn't I suffer the consequences? I'm, I'm not sure I, I actually fully understand your question. I presume you're getting Medicare, are you not? You're talking about not being in the Medicare program as an option. Right, right, right. So, so you're, you're not receiving Medicare right now? It's right out of hypothetical. Uh, no, I understand that. I understand that. But are you are are you participating in the Medicare program? No, no. Medicare is for people over sixty-five years of age. And from what you said, you 
If, if, you're, if you're receiving Social Security benefits, then you're enrolled at least in Medicare Part A and possibly in Medicare Part B. But I think the question was, I, th I, th I think the, the, the question was, shouldn't you save up over the course of your lifetime and whatever you can afford in your retirement, that's the health care you get? Um, or uh, uh, absent that, shouldn't the government just give you, I think you just mentioned just now, a voucher or, or the money and let you purchase health insurance as you see fit? Okay. You know, at, 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 when, when Medicare was enacted in, in 1965, half of America's seniors did not have health care coverage. Um, I don't think that was a good thing. Uh, and it meant that uh, many seniors who are, have at least statistically a far greater likelihood of needing health care than uh, uh, younger age cohorts, uh, many of them could not receive uh, significant care. I think that uh, I think we as a country should be proud. It is now a bipartisan consensus uh, that uh, Medicare should not be eliminated. Uh, there, there probably are uh, some uh, different uh, uh, things about the Medicare program that are likely to be modified over the next few years. Um, but I, I think we as a nation have gotten past that. We've said that and you may not have gotten past it, and uh, while you still get your Medicare Part A benefits. Uh, <clears throat> um, but I, I, I think that we as a nation have uh, come to the conclusion that was a good thing to do. We're going to continue doing it. Uh, I believe that the same is true for other parts of the population who simply cannot afford to get health care without some kind of a safety net. And I'm glad that the Affordable Care Act begins to create a stronger safety net under which people won't be able to fall through. So let, let me just say, because I, I heard a different dimension of what you were asking around, you know, if you, if you, like you said, if you wanted to get a Ford, then that's what you would get if you want to get another certain kind of care. I think there's a real kind of fundament, there are a couple of fundamental backup a little bit for, for me that I think about when I get into that type of dialogue. So as a, as a healthcare provider, I don't necessarily want people to get afford because in my mind, the provision of care is something that if we've got the, not even the technology, if we have the knowledge to do something to prevent you from having a heart attack or to prevent you from down the road having something, I don't classify that in my mind as, well, here's your Ford option as a doctor. Here's the, you know, the, the Chevy Geo option and here's the souped up version. I don't think that way. That's not how our medical system operates. So one aspect of this is that I do believe that if we've got the knowledge and the capacity, and, and we also have the technology, then we need to make sure it's not that people live to be as long as you know 200 years old, but that if you're in the system and you come to me for your visit maybe once even every three years, even though you should be coming probably to get some other checks, maybe more frequently than that. But if you come to get your cholesterol checked and I find out that you've got high cholesterol, you may be feeling fine, but I know from a medical standpoint that you actually probably need to address that. So that's why it's hard to take kind of the very analogy of, well, my father bought this kind of a car because that's what he could afford. I completely understand, though, that in order for our system and our Medicare system to not go bankrupt in the next decades, which it will be, then we need to think very hard about 
thinking through, are there benefits that perhaps if you can afford to put, put, put in a little more money, then that might be something you do. And that's certainly, I think, the direction. Health reform is not going to stop with the Affordable Care Act. I think there's going to be health reform two and three and four as we try to tinker with this. And, in, and then the second part of this is how do we actually, you don't, you, you know, just the example of when you turn 65, most seniors don't realize if they did that they got enrolled in Part A. We need better information. So I completely understand the desire to kind of, the money you earn, the money you get, you spend the way you want to. And I think that's a fundamentally American principle. I think there are several steps. And I would say to you that there's probably an even bigger issue of, is medical care just like all other kind of consumer free market type of items, or is there something else to it? And I would just say that from kind of the standpoint of a clinician, it's more complicated than that in my mind. And so that's, but I, but I understand and kind of hear what you're saying about wanting to do what you want with your money. Um, and I think we'll have to end it there. And I, I'm afraid the last question is going to have to go to Clive. I'm not sorry that you're getting the last question. I'm sorry that it's the last question, Clive nice. Crook. <laughs> Uh, Clive Crook from the Financial Times. Uh, I have a question that I'd be interested to hear Doug or Michael, or maybe both of you, respond to. Um, do you feel that universal coverage is a correct objective? And if you do, how would you approach it? I can. Want to go, for, go ahead first. I can start. And and my my quick answer is that um, if. Your goal is to provide health care to uh, an ever increase of ever increasing quality to an ever increasing number of people, so that it's always getting better, and you're always um, reaching out and, and, and delivering that care to more and more people, so that fewer and fewer people are falling through the cracks. Then, no, you don't want the government to set universal coverage as a goal, because the moment it does that, it makes it harder for the the market to deliver on that underlying goal, which is to uh, have fewer people falling through the cracks. And you can look at the what we've already talked about, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance. Uh, I'm sure some people thought that was a wonderful idea. It's going to make health care more accessible to people by providing them a tax break for it. Well, what it has done is it has caused a lot of people to lose their insurance exactly at the, precisely the moment they needed it the most, when they get sick and can't work anymore. And it also left a lot of people without insurance when they retired, which uh, contributed to the problem that Ron was talking about, that Medicare was intended to solve. Uh, a lot of people at, uh, in, in their golden years who don't have any health health insurance. Uh, the Medicare program, I think, is another example. One uh, topic that we didn't get into, we've had events about this at the Cato Institute before, is that large expansions of health insurance like Medicare, uh, researchers have had a very difficult time finding any health benefits from those large expansions of health insurance. This is a very counterintuitive point. But uh, uh, an economist at MIT named Amy Finkelstein and her colleague Robin McKnight uh, actually looked at what the da data have to say, and they could find no health improvements. Uh, it, among seniors in the 10 years after Medicare was enacted. As a very counterintuitive result, they've got some, uh, they've got some reasons why they think that's the case. Uh, I think one of the reasons is Medicare caused health care uh, spending to explode even further. It caused a lot of investment in, um, in uh, health care that provides low, marginal, low or zero marginal benefits, and in some cases, even negative marginal benefits. So that we're actually providing, and I think everyone on this panel would agree, a lot of health care to people in this country that actually hurts them. So I, I think that these and other steps that, uh, that the federal and state governments have taken on the road toward universal health insurance coverage have actually made it harder to deliver on that goal of having fewer people fall through the cracks. In short, I think I'm, I'm going to agree on the bottom line. I mean, we've already established in this country universal 
uh, health care coverage. You, you cannot turn down any individual need of care. It's done. The question is, are you going to have some sort of mandate or goal on a financial product called health insurance? And I believe that by doing it, we, A, in practice, um, impede our ability to get there because we have to come up with a politically driven definition of coverage and then price it, and those are two things that no political system does well. And the second mistake we make is we, we don't allow the kind of innovation and, and competition as a result in insurance that would get us better insurance products, give people universal options to buy better things, and I think take them up. And we're never willing as a society to run the experiment of, of having young people learn the, and through experience why it's prudent to buy insurance products. And Ron wanted to... Uh, yeah, and one, one thing I, I want to disagree, we do not have universal coverage. There's no such thing as a guarantee that people get care. That's, that's a canard. What we do have is we do have an Imtala federal statute that requires anybody who is an immediate risk of life or limb that they must be treated. Now, that's a whole lot different than saying uh, that uh, we, we provide uh, coverage and care uh, for everyone. Quite the contrary. Uh, you, don't, you don't have a right to preventive care. You don't have a right to primary care. You don't even have a, a right to specialized care, even if it's a significant uh, health problem that you have. You do have a right if you are in immediate risk of life or limb uh, to get care, but that's the extent of it. Uh, and I guess one last thing I would say is I think there are lots of beauties about the private sector and the private marketplace. Uh, but to try to cure, uh, help cure societal ills where there is not a profit uh, benefit to be achieved by that, it's not a place where we're likely to see the uh, private market uh, cure this problem. We've got 50.7 million people. Uh, with each year, we've seen an increase in the number of people who are uninsured. Certainly, we've had plenty of time to have the private market get this right. It has not done so. This is one of the areas uh, where there is a need for public intervention. And that's going to have to be the last comment. I want to thank again our panelists for coming to uh, talk about these issues with us. Kavita Patel, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, and Ron Pollack. We're going to have, have a 15-minute break. We'll start again at 3.15 3 sharp uh, with uh, uh, Jen Crawford, Roger Pallon, and Neera Tendon. Thank you. <laughs>